Yeah, I think for men of a certain age who drank so many cups of coffee during the day, the, the visual aids might be a bit of a challenge. Really. <laughs> uh, so I don't know where the restaurants are, but you know, if, if you need them, come and ask Whitney. <laughs> uh, brothers and sisters, what, uh, what a great joy for me it has been to share these days with you. Um, and, and I know that Rebecca and I, when we head up to the flesh pots of Manhattan uh, tomorrow morning to have a few days holiday, um, we'll go with both, uh, I think, a smile on our faces, but also a heavy heart. Because, because just in a couple of days, um, you have taken us to your hearts. Uh, and I feel ready, uh, I think of you as friends. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Whitney, for your vision. Um, uh, sometimes in, in England, um, I say of some of the wonderful clergy that I serve uh, as Bishop of Chelsea, um, I say when I visit the churches, you do know, don't you, that you have got a Rolls-Royce rector. Um, uh, but I don't think Rolls-Royce is a good description for Whitney. Um, I think maybe she's a Maserati. <laughs> or a Porsche. Um, something a bit, a bit snazzier, speedier, and classier. Uh, so, Whitney, thank you for your vision. Uh, thank you for your leadership of God's Church here. Marilyn, thank you uh, for the way in which you took hold of this vision and, and with Whitney made this thing happen. Thank you to the vestry here. Uh, um, for all that you've done to make this happen. Thank you to Bishop Ian, um, whom I cherish as a friend and as a partner in the Gospel. Um, and I believe that God has done something beautiful here in these few days just to take us back uh, to the very basics of our Christian faith, remind us of why we are Christian. And I hope also begin to put us back together in such a way that we will serve the purposes of God. That's what it's about, you see. It's not about building the earthly empire of the church. It's not about dragging the world, kicking and screaming into the church. It's about our participation in the purposes of God for this reason and this reason only because we have seen in Jesus Hope for the world and hope for our own lives. And today, and in these readings, I guess we come to the nub of it. Uh, and we've arrived here in a convoluted way. We've heard about Jesus producing ridiculous amounts of wine for already inebriated wedding guests. <laughs> we've spoken about poor old Lazarus who had to die twice. We've thought about Mary Magdalene in the garden. And now we come to a real nub of it, which is this weird conversation between a Samaritan woman and the saviour of the world. Yeah. You didn't know I could do that, did you? I'm on a roll. Bring me those six stone jars of water. <laughs> I tell you what, we'll be drawing Chateau 
enough to pack from this one. This is a really weird conversation. And, and, and first of all, let's just be clear how very weird and unconventional it is. First of all, Jesus is speaking to a woman. Um, incredibly countercultural for his day, and not just any old woman, a Samaritan woman. And here I have to control myself. Um, but let me just limit myself to saying, have you noticed that in the Gospels, the heroes of some of Jesus' most famous stories and encounters are people of other faiths? Um, a Samaritan woman, a Syrophoenician woman, a Roman centurion, and that very, very famous story about a good Samaritan. And a good Samaritan, I mean, this, this is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan. A Samaritan is our enemy. A Samaritan is a heretic. A Samaritan has a rival temple to our temple in Jerusalem. That's why they had that weird conversation about which is the right mountain to worship on. Which we would say, well, what's all that got to do with anything? It had everything to do with it for Samaritans and Jews with rival claims about which was the right place to worship. You know, the power, I, I, I feel I've got to say this because I'll be out of here tomorrow, and if I offend you, I can just put it down to experience. Um, the power of the story of the Good Samaritan is the power of this. Who is the person you would least like to receive mercy from? Because the power of the story is that you're in a ditch. You're in a ditch. And the priest passes by, and the lawyer passes by, and then your sworn enemy, that rich foreigner, is the person um, who comes to minister to you. It's like Donald Trump being in the ditch, being given mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation by a Mexican refugee. <laughs> Um, very strange uh, 
exchange. Jesus says, the hour is coming when true worshippers will worship the Father not on either of these mountains. What Jesus says, not on either of these mountains. The true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman's got no idea what he's practicing. <laughs> so she says, well, look, okay, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, um, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus says, I am he, the one who is speaking to you now. So here's my question for this evening, and we will enjoy a little bit of, of audience participation again. Uh, so here's my question to you now, and this is the question which we'll explore this evening, and then we'll finish. We can all heave a sigh of relief. Those three days are over. I came, I saw, I went home. Um, <laughs> what sort of relationship does God want, well, with you, with everyone? What sort of relationship does God want with you? And I hope that as we try to find an answer to this question, you can build again the whole of your Christian life. So what kind of relationship does God want with you? Let's try out a few possibilities. Does God want you to be his slave? Anybody, anybody think that's the, uh, that's the relationship? No? Okay. No, no takers for slave. Okay. Does, let's try something else. Does God want you to be his servant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's a... Uh, it's a kind of, it's a yes but, isn't it? Yes but. Yeah, we, we are called to be servants of God. Um, but no, that can't be the whole answer. There's got to be something else. So let's try something else. Does God want you to be his friend? <laughs> Anybody think God wants you to be his friend? It's okay to say yes. <laughs> yeah? Marilyn thinks yes. Yeah? Well, um, let, let me be provocative just to keep the. Uh, look, I'm going up to the steps backwards again. <laughs> oh, no, no, Deborah, you're the one impressed with going up the steps backwards. Um, last, last night, somebody said afterwards, I was preaching my heart out last night, wasn't I? And somebody said to me, I love that bit when you went up the stairs backwards. <laughs> um, and I thought, yeah, well, thank you, yeah. Um, does God want you to be his friend? Um, well, let, let me be provocative. I don't, I've got to know a bit over the last few days. Quite frankly, I do not think God wants to be friends with you, God. <laughs> now I know Marion will take me to one side afterwards and says, but it says in John's Gospel, does it not? I call you no longer servants, I call you friends. So, so friend, like servant, is, is, is a yes but. Yes, yes, does God, God does want us to be his friends, but that is not the whole story of the gospel. And therefore, do not let anybody sell you short 
with something that sounds like the gospel of Jesus Christ, but is not the full-blooded, biblical, Catholic and apostolic vision. So no, God doesn't want you to be a slave. Yes, he does want you to be a servant, but that's not all. Yes, he does want to be your friend, but neither is that all. The kind of language that the New Testament uses to describe the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ, the relationship that God wants for each one of us, is family member. You were there before me. Family member. And I think the other thing we know is that, this is a little footnote, being a family member is much harder than being a friend. <laughs> you can choose your friends. <laughs> you cannot choose your family members. Are you listening? And you can communion. <laughs> you cannot choose. Um, you know, whether you like it or not, these are the people who are part of the word family. All these words are loaded, and we have to be careful how we use them. There are many people in America today, as there are in Britain, for whom the word family is not a good word. Whose experience of family is exploitative, damaging, alienating. So we have to be careful how we use these words. Therefore, we might be interested to know that the word family doesn't appear very much in the Bible. But the word that tends to be used is household. Household. That's a good word. The household of God, which is both family and extended family. Um, and so that's the relationship. God wants us to be part of his household. Um, the, the, the language that St. Paul uses in several occasions in his epistles is adoption. He says it's like being adopted into a family, like being adopted into a household. That's the relationship that God wants for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, the other kind of scandalous word that Paul uses uh, in several places is he uses the language of marriage. He says, yes, it's like being adopted into a family, he says, but it's also a bit like a marriage. Uh, it's the people of God. Uh, the highest doctrine of the church imaginable is the church is a bunch of men and women who are living their lives in relationship with God through Jesus Christ and serving God's purposes in the world. That's the church. This is the building we meet in. It's the building where we gather together in order to be sent out. Not gather together to escape from the world, gather together to be equipped, encouraged, provoked, challenged, inspired to serve the world. We're the gathered in and the sent out church. What St. Paul calls the bride of Christ. That is the relationship. But, let's return briefly to yesterday evening. Uh, do you remember we started why doesn't Mary Magdalene recognise Jesus? Or remember on the first Easter morning, we had a little bit of time thinking about that. And I was saying that there is, do you remember, continuity? It's the same Jesus who died on the cross. Discontinuity, Jesus has been raised with a new and transformed life. Therefore, 
Mary Magdalene doesn't recognise it. Now this is a theme running through the resurrection narratives, because if you remember the story in Luke's Gospel on Emmaus Road, same thing's happening. Cleopas and his companion are getting out of Jerusalem, Jesus walks alongside them, they don't recognise him. Why? Same reason, continuity, same Jesus, discontinuity, raised to a new and transformed life. Not one, Lazarus, who has to die twice. Um, but there's another reason why he isn't recognised, which does take a bit of explaining, so keep concentrating. Why doesn't Mary Magdalene recognise Jesus? Why doesn't Cleopas and his companion recognise Jesus? Answer, because Jesus loves them so much. Because Jesus loves them so much. Now that, I know, needs a bit of puzzling out. So let me explain as best that I can. When I've got three sons, as I think some of you will have heard, uh, when my sons were teenagers, they gave Rebecca and I a hard time. <laughs> um, in the same way that when I was a teenager, surprise, surprise, they're their father's sons. When I was a teenager, I gave my parents a hard time. Uh, my mother used to take my girlfriends to one side and say to them, you can do a lot better than this, you know. <laughs> Which was, you know, not terribly good for my ego as a, as, a, as, a, as a young teenager. But eventually, as you can see, Exhibit A, the lovely Rebecca, eventually I did find somebody who would have me. Joy upon joy. And we've been, I think, happily married for 33 years. But say, say, I, when, I, when we get home to the UK, say I discover that on our wedding day, there was a sniper posted in the gallery of the church with a rifle trained at Rebecca's head because she was being blackmailed by my mother to marry me because nobody else would have me. And this has been going on for 33 years. Say I discovered that, it wouldn't be that Rebecca loves me a little bit less than I thought she did. She wouldn't love me at all. And here, if there's one bit of theology that you remember from these three days, try to remember this. For it to be love, it has to be free. For it to be love, it has to be free. And if you take away just a little bit of the freedom, then actually you take away all the love. In fact, it stops being love as soon as you take away the freedom. So, bear with me, hold on, we'll get there. God has a problem, doesn't he? God has a problem, if you'll forgive me for putting it that way. Because how do you, if you're God, how do you communicate to us the absolute, unconditional nature of your love? And yet at the same time, safeguard our freedom to 
how we respond. How can you do both those things? You see, God, if he wanted to, God could appear now in the centre of Bridgefield in all his terrible majesty, like the closing scenes of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they lift up the lid. God could do that here in Bridgefield right now if he wanted to, and everybody in Bridgefield would simply have no choice but to acknowledge that there is a God. And God wants nothing other than that. God takes this incredible risk of doing absolutely everything that is necessary to communicate his love, but at the same time safeguard our ability to choose how we respond and therefore take the risk we will never respond. We know that there are many people who never respond. Does that mean that God loves them any less? No, of course not. The whole point of the Christian story is that God's invitation of love is offered freely and equally to absolutely everybody. And therefore it's like being adopted into a family, but it's also like a marriage covenant. And God on his side has already done everything in Jesus Christ. And now he waits. He simply waits, expending himself in love, longing that we might respond our love to his love. There was a great Baptist preacher, I don't know his name, he was an American, who preached in the deep south of America at the turn of the last century. He preached in his big outdoor rallies and he told the story of the, of the cross. And he told the story of the cross as if it were a marriage ceremony. And it's the most beautiful theology. And he'd tell the story of the cross and he would say, you know, you can imagine that the congregation would be gathered outside like we were on Sunday night. And he would tell the story of what Jesus did on the cross. And he would say that on the cross, God the Father says to God the Son, Will you, Saviour, take these poor sinners to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, from this day forward and forevermore? And when in St. John's Gospel on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. It is like Jesus is saying, I will. I pledge my troth to you. But then, just as the drama of a wedding service turns, doesn't it, from one partner to the other, so does the drama of salvation. And now, God, our courteous and loving father and mother, turns to us. And God says to us, okay, so, will you Poor sinner that you are, will you take this sin to love and to cherish?
cherish, to have and to hold. From this day forward and forevermore. And I think all I want to say to you is, at that point in the drama of salvation, we have a God who waits. He won't do anything to force you to respond. He won't twist your arm or behind your back. He won't coerce you or manipulate you. He won't judge you if you, if you if you don't respond. You might judge yourself. We have God who waits. Who waits courteously for the free response of our love to his love. Now I know you know this. You've heard this story the cross of Jesus Christ a thousand times. But I also know that sometimes we need to respond again. We need to come to the foot of the cross and say, I will. I will. I pledge my trophy to you. If you are the one who alone can bring me the joy, the fulfilment, the peace that I long for. You can be the one who is the fulfilment of my life. Let me put it another way. Because sometimes we need to look at these things from different angles to see what they mean. Um, when I was a little boy, uh, when my mum put me to bed, she often used to say to me, Stephen, if I lined up all the little boys in all the world and walked up and down the line, Looking at all the little boys in all the world, guess which one I choose? I would choose you. And I can still remember my mum saying this to me. I would choose you. Uh, and because this had such an impact on my own childhood, knowing the affirmation of my mother's love, I used to say the same thing to our boys. Though we've got three, so I can care about the ages. I said, <laughs> if you like, I've got four year olds in the world, but six year olds in the world. And I walked up and down the road. Guess which one I would choose? I would choose you. And I think I must have, I think I must have debased the currency by saying it rather too often. Because after a few years, my boys had said back to me, they said, Well, if I lined up with the dads in all the world and walked up and down the line, guess which dad I would choose? I would choose you. And you know the funny thing is, it worked. When they said that to me, I felt the affirmation of their love. In a way, it worked even better. Because I don't know about some of the dads here, but I know, I know that I'm not the best dad. I know there were many ways in which I allowed my priorities in life to get muddled and didn't put them first. But that's not the point. It's not, it's not that I'm the best dad in all the world. I'm their dad. And they're my sons. And I suppose I want you to know that that is the heart of the Christian relationship through Jesus Christ in the household of faith. That God is our father and mother. And we are his children. 
And yet it is like being adopted into a family, and at the same time it's like a marriage covenant. And all these images and analogies break down after a little while, which is why Paul piled metaphor upon metaphor to try to explain it to us. But in the end, we come to that place, that place where the two criminals hanging alongside Jesus arrived. One made five, and the other one said, Remember me in that kingdom of yours. And he said that because he caught a glimpse in Jesus of hope for his life, hope for the world. And Jesus said to him, as you probably know, today you will be with me in paradise. And that is the promise that we receive when we simply say yes to God. And it doesn't matter how big or how small your faith is. I was in the church in the Diocese of Chelmsford a few weeks ago, uh, chatting with a man who'd come to church with his family, but, you know, said quite frankly, he wasn't a believer himself, but he came to support his wife and kids. And uh, I said, so you're an atheist, are you? He said, no, no, I'm not an atheist. And I said, so, you know, how would you describe your faith? Have you got any faith at all? He said, well, I've got a really little faith. I said, oh, right, okay, how little? And he said, well, very, very, very little. I said, well, no, but how little? <laughs> and he said, well, really, really little. And I said, what would you say it was as small as a mustard seed? He said, that's <laughs> And he goes, yes, yeah, I suppose I would. I said, let me tell you a story. 